You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan Whites. Greetings and welcome to the B&H Photography Podcast. Before we get started, be sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes and while you're there, leave us a review for the show. Also, check out our landing page at bh.com slash explorer, that's explorer with an A, slash podcast. You can find all of our episodes there, as well as images by our guests and links to the products and services we talk about on that particular show. We're happy to be back with you after our break, and to celebrate, we have a great episode in store for you. We're going to start today's show on a congenial yet practical note with Frank Mayo, also known as The Photo Closer. If you are a freelancer, you know how agonizing it can be to come up with a fee for a project, come up with a price, especially if it's a new client, you really don't know where they are and how they stand on things. This could be really difficult. Negotiating with clients and establishing a rate for your services is going to be the topic of our day with Frank Mayo. After a break, we're going to take a dramatic turn and present the first segment of our new serial, Dispatch. We'll begin this series with photojournalist Adrian O'Hannison, who introduces us to her work, discusses her life as a freelancer based in Nairobi, Kenya, and prepares us for her upcoming assignment in Somalia. Once a month, O'Hannison will offer us insight into the working life of a photographer in conflict zones, and having Adrian as a past guest on the show, I can tell you that this new series is something that you're going to want to return to and follow. But first, welcome, Frank Mayo. Segway Thank you very King much for over here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great having you, especially a fellow Brooklynite. Frank has represented fine art commercial photographers as well as Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalists in securing highly valued commercial assignments. He has worked with numerous photo libraries and campaigns for clients such as American Express, U.S. Coast Guard, ESPN, Nike, and others. His photographers have worked for every major newspaper, magazine, and TV network. He's also the founder of the photocloser.com. He advises and consults with photographers from around the globe. His services include estimating and negotiating on behalf of photographers to ad agencies. Part of what a photo closer offers are brainstorming sessions that motivate and inspire photographers of all levels. Mayo has also been invited to speak at many institutions and events, including the International Center of Photography, the Eddie Adams Workshop, American Society of Media Photographers, ASMP, PDN Expo, the Palm Springs Photo Festival, and Syracuse University. Also, for those of you who have a memory, if you saw the movie Goodfellas, he also played the photo closer in that movie, right? That was you. That was me. That's right, the photo closer. Wait, what? Great scene. Anyway, welcome, Frank. Seen that movie twenty times. <laughs> yeah, you know, but you got to watch it carefully. Yeah, you really, really it. do. If you miss out, I shot commercially for many years, and I, and I know what it's like to do an estimate and come up with an assignment. Somebody calls you up and say, we need a picture of whatever. And you have to sit there, and you have to come up with, okay, how many days is this going to take? Where is this going to be appearing? Is it editorial? Is it advertising? Is it corporate? Is it a bar mitzvah? Uh, we're not going to get at that. Um, but everything has a certain amount of value, and you have to be able to pick that right, and then you have to pick out what else is going into that estimate as far as what can be included, 
what shouldn't be included, what could be rented, what do I have to eat, et cetera. What are the criteria that you work with when coming up with an estimate? What I like to do is get to the art buyer or the art producer from the ad agency or the editor from the magazine, whatever it is, to get input from them. What are they really looking for? So I'm trying to get specifics. So I want to know the usage. I want to know their timetable, when they want to shoot, how quickly they need an estimate. Because all those factors, for me, get, gives me a sense of, do they really want to use my guy? Do, do you ever ask them if they have a budget up front? Absolutely. So, so that'll be all parts of the question. Okay. So when I ask for the usage, I'll say, you know, and then they'll tell me um, two years, you know, um, in the USA. So you have a sense of budget on this. So what I do is I sort of make it a, a meandering conversation so that it isn't – it's a little bit business, mm -hmm. but it's a little bit connecting. And that's the piece that I always convey to the photographers that you have to connect – with that person on the other side of the phone. Reason being on the back end, you submit an estimate and you're a little bit high. If you haven't connected with that art buyer or that creative director, something is missing because now they just have a sheet of paper and Frank Mayo is high. Joe Smith is the low bid, but they really want to work with Frank Mayo. So if you've connected with them, they get a sense of who you are. So they'll call you and say, listen, Frank, we really want to work with your guy, but you're a little bit high. And of course, you, know, you tell me what the number is and I'll, I'll make that number work. You know, what, what is the difference? I mean, unless it's, you know, completely ridiculous and I don't, feel, I don't feel that the production can actually work without the money that we have in there. But usually it's on the fee because if, if they're looking at that estimate and they know that you need to location scout and you need to – get permits and you need maybe a nurse on the set because you're shooting kids under five and I like to always have a nurse there just in case something happens. Those numbers have to be there. So the piece – and so it's it, – where does it end up? It ends up in your day rate and it ends up on your usage where you may be a little bit higher. But if I've connected with that art producer, they're willing to come back to me. If they don't come back to you, that means you missed an opportunity to really connect with that potential client. So they'll say, because they'll say, Frank, listen, you're a little bit high. Can you make the number work? And of course you say, yes. You know, tell me where, where I have to cut and we'll make the number work. But if they don't call you back and they just tell you you were the high bid and we couldn't, you know, we couldn't get it lower, you didn't have an advocate in that conference room when they were showing the bids and the links to the website, your numbers were just on a sheet of paper. So that, for me, that when people get lost in these estimates, it's really as much about the numbers and even more so about that connection piece. This is something we've talked about before on the show where it's, that's kind of what's at the key to it. And just like you said, you know, do, and remember we had Jordan on the show. He was talking oh, about, human factor, you know, yeah, yeah. Do, you, do you want to be with this person? You yeah. Know, and, and do you want to work with this person? That's almost as important as how good their photos are going to be. But um let me ask you, then, we're talking here also about advertising jobs, bigger jobs. Let's say you just get an email from somebody, even if it's an ad job, saying, we heard you're a good photographer, so-and-so recommended you, this is what we want to do, can you send us your rate? And that's all you get. Would you, are you going to recommend to them, to the photographer, to make the phone call anyway, get in touch with them, and try to get more information out? Or are you going to just say, hey, this is what they asked for, let me just get them an email back with, with a figure? If I just got that email that you described... Mm -hmm. I'd need just at least a smidgen more information. What am I shooting? Mm -hmm. What's the usage going to be? Yeah. Usage is a big part of that. Too, right. So now we're getting into the factors. To, yeah. let's, let's get to the, yeah. <clears throat> right. Let's talk about right. usage. I mean, right. let, let, so 
the person that would send that kind of an email mm -hmm. is clearly on the low end budget. You know, right? They're just looking for somebody to go and cover a press conference. You know, right? Somebody behind the podium to shoot. Right? That that's you you'd, you'd garnish a little bit of information on the company that it's coming from. Right? And you may have a, they may have actually have a little bit of history with them because they have your name. They probably wouldn't have your name just randomly. Right? So you know things like that. You know you'd have to say. This is my day rate. I mean, if you were forced into a situation, I mean, I would I would never give a number based on what you said. I would have to call them and say, I just need a little bit of information. You know, is it, you know, give me the timetable. When do you need to shoot? What's the usage? You know, um, where do I have to go? You know, just give me something, right? And then, and then you say, okay, um, all right. So they said, it's two hours. It's here in New York City. It's just for this press conference. They're not going to use it in any other place other than maybe an annual report or maybe on their website. So each photographer has to say, what is that worth to me, right? So for somebody, that's 250 For somebody else, my day rate is 500 right? If it's in the middle of the day and you can't do anything else, so it's from 12 to 2, you can't do anything beforehand and you certainly can't do anything afterwards. So there's my number. My number is 350, whatever. And, and I don't think you can condemn somebody for doing that at 250, right? That's really, that's what they charge, right? Is it giving it away? Maybe it's giving it away. Is it worth 500? Is it worth 750? Depending upon the client, right? What, what's involved? They may say you have to wear a jacket and tie because, you know, we're in this kind of a situation. So that's something else, right? If you have a little bit of history, you know, then you maybe if you have that history with them, and then you're sort of saying, well, I know I always get, you know, half a dozen jobs from these folks in the course of the year, so this is what we normally charge, right? Do you, I mean, do you build in a factor of... Don't forget that question. Oh. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, he was biting on it. <laughs> you can go. I'll, I'll remember mine if you want to jump in. Well, let me just jump to this one. Because go ahead. It's funny you mentioned the suit because I had a, a job offer not that long ago, and I needed to wear a tux, and I don't own a tux. Right. And I actually asked them, I said, so are you going to, you know, pay for that expenses? And they kind of balked. And that was going to start cutting seriously into what the the fee was. And it, and so I bumped up my fee a little bit based on that factor. And and eventually they said that my fee was too high, you know. So <laughs> that's not that, you know, these are issues that, you know, every no, little thing needs, you need to figure yeah, out. Yeah, they're absolutely yeah, yeah. real. But, but you have to imagine they were looking at, you know, let's just get somebody in here to shoot who had, yeah. you know, and it's $200. He's going to be here for an hour. Mm -hmm. And gone. Right. Just you know, give us give us the right. file, and you walk out, right? So, you know, th that then you know you're in this sort of middle space. Was that worth it, right? And if you if now if you've seen over the course of the year, six times, five times, you needed a tuxedo, the door has to knock. You know, you got to right. get knocked on your head. You know, I should get a tuxedo, yeah. <laughs> right? You know, for you know, 150 bucks from uh, from Macy's or, right. or whatever it is. Right. You could rent them for 20, 25 no. bucks. Is that, that cheap? No, no. Maybe more than, is it more than that? It's more than that. Are oh. you kidding? You in the dark ages? Okay, Alan's, twenty-five Alan's prom, dollars. Alan's so. prom was in nineteen what year? <laughs> <laughs> the Ruggler was twenty-five dollars. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Very true. Good point. <laughs> but yeah, I'm so, just curious. Did you have to tuck your pants into your boots? for that. <laughs> <laughs> we digress. I didn't do the job. <laughs> um, but the numbers you were talking about for that type of job, those are some of the figures that you would consider ballpark, you know, anywhere from 250 to 700 for, let's talk a day rate for an event or something that, that right. I mean, those are numbers yeah. that you would be, we're talking about New York City also too, and right. regional 
and location makes a big difference as, as Alan oh, was mentioning sure, earlier. Yeah. But, yeah. Right. but for New York City, that's a that's a range yeah, that you'd be comfortable. I mean, you wouldn't go any lower than that, would you? No, and, no. And, and that's where I can tack in the question I was going to ask you. When you give a quote, I imagine you there's a certain amount of pushback that you get regularly, maybe not all the time, but a good percentage of the time. You give a number and they come back at you for whatever reason. Do you bump it up a little bit? Do you anticipate that? Or do you just say, this is really accurate and true and I'm just going to stick with my guns as best as I can? Well, it, 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 it's it's a little bit of both, right? Right, because I mean, you know, it's a weird n- dance. N- Nineteen out of twenty times, they're coming back to you. Can you work with your number? Yeah, right. And like I said, it's usually the fee or the usage, and that's almost, you know, it's almost like their job to say you're a little bit high. Yeah. Right. So it's supposed to beat you. Yeah. It's it's a little bit of cat and mouse game. And then sometimes, you know, you do go right through that. You know, that was a fair number because, again, if you're connecting with that art producer, you'll say, I'll say to her, I'm going to put in, you know, our normal day rate is 5,000, right? And I'll probably do a usage rate of 1,500 based what you have here. And you'll get that sort of feedback, you know, that seems fine. That seems fine. And now what? So so now the bids go in and somebody else is, you know, at 4,500 or 4,000. You know, the, the client balked a little bit. Can you make it work? So it's almost like you're, you're, you're making a gesture to make your rate. Well, if they're at four and we're at five, let's make 4,500. And all they want is that gesture, right? All they want is the fact that, you know what? He's going to go rent a tuxedo, right? He's going to do that and he's going to eat that. That that leaves an impression that, you know, here's a guy, you know, John's willing to work with us. That's I found that always to be important. You can't yeah. be... It can't be etched in stone. Right. And and unless, you know, unless the differences are so huge mm-hmm. and they're doing, you know, three ads, worldwide buyout, and they're telling you that somebody else put in 250 for that usage each, 250. And your number is certainly way off from that. You have to say that's really not fair. And most people, when you when you use a term, listen, Michael, that's just not fair. You know, people get that. And they and they know that too. And, and you see that the the better people or the better agencies, people that you work with, they know that that's not right. So internally, they will push back to the client first and say, listen, you know, these these are worldwide ads for three years. We cannot even ask our suppliers to come to that rate of 250. That So what happens is that low bid makes themselves look foolish, right? So you have to watch, you know, that piece as well. And Again, if you've connected, even if you haven't connected in a situation like that, they're coming back to you and saying, you know, listen, you know, your number is a reasonable number. Can you just, can you make a gesture and just, just come down a bit? I I think a reasonable thing also on the photographer's side is, is that if you are giving an estimate in and they do come back at you and say, it's really high, can you do it for X amount? All right. And there are times they come back with a number that you know is ridiculous, but you're afraid to turn it down because you won't hear from them again. So you accept it. In the meantime, you're doing the job resentfully and your heart's not in it. And you got to be careful of that too. So I think that if you do take, if you do take a hit like that and you have, I think the important thing is accept it that, okay, I'm not going to do that again, but put a smile on your face and do the job as if you're making a ton of money on it. I think that's yeah, important well, too. Well, once you're shooting, you're shooting. You own it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that kind of stuff of, you know, I'm pissed off that they didn't give me, you know, the right amount and this, this, and that you got to let that go. So the, the fact that the, the bottom line is that before you say yes, make sure you could live with that. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That, that, that for sure. Yeah. Be, because th- then nothing's good. You know, you got a sour face on, right? And you're with these people for a day and a half and, you know, boy, that kid, that guy never smiled. 
Yeah. Right? He's pissed the whole and time. And you're not getting any more work. Exactly. Yeah. So so that's a loser. It's like I said to John when we were speaking last week, you know, you put your numbers in and, you know, as long as at the end of the night you put your head on the pillow and say, I'm fine with that. That was the number I put in. Whether I get it or I don't get it, that was a fair number. What's your feeling on, on going back? Let's say you didn't get a job for – on going back to the people and saying, can you tell me why? You know, can you can you say, was my offer too high? Did you find somebody whose work you like better? And I mean, sometimes I do. I have done that, and you get no response. Other times you get the person. Well, you know, it was a little high for this case, but we really liked your work. And and next time when we have a bigger budget, we'll give you a call. Or how do you feel about that? That kind of follow up after the fact. It. it I love the follow up. I always. I always try to. You know, can you give us a sense? You know. Uh, was it something in the portfolio of the other guy that they saw? You know what? Again, if you've connected with them, they will give you that information. But you'll also have a sense going in that you're really the number two choice, right? And and I love when someone says, "Listen, we, we really have somebody that has worked with us before." Um, so I know as as it relates to managing the expectations of my photographer. Let me follow up on what we were talking about earlier too. That this idea where you you accept a job that maybe you feel is not the amount that you, you wanted, that you're not comfortable with. And I'm sure everyone has done that at one point or the other. And, and certainly when you're starting out, that's the things you have to do. Um, but how many times would you do that, you know, when you're starting out? I mean, it's hard when to put you a number When are you done starting out? Yeah, when are you done starting out? When do you, st- <laughs> right. when do you, when do you come to the point and say, when you, you know graduate. What, I have to say no. I, I know, remember, I remember the first time I said no, and I felt good about it. Mm. Yeah. I, I definitely had... It's um, – all right, so, so now you can get into a, a different part of that relationship as it relates to your rep – Mm-hmm. Right. If you have a rep, and you know now, you mean a rep- representative or right. reputation? Rep- representative. Re- representative. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, and and you have a reputation. I mean, they're, they're sort of first mm-hmm. cousins, mm-hmm. right? So you now you have a little bit of a business responsibility to the rep, mm-hmm. right? And that that plays that plays into the equation. You know, all of a sudden you're you know you're turning down work, and how does that make me feel? So as the rep, I'm, you know, I'm looking at 30% no matter what the number is, right? And if I've got 12 photographers, you know, all I care about, you know, if I'm a greedy rep, that's – so you have, to, you have to sort of manage that. And that gets into the rep-photographer relationship as it relates to we're in this together, you know. And if you have a rep that's not into it together, you know, then that, that's a bad thing. I mean I've, we've turned down work a lot, with a lot of money. For, for like working with a photojournalist who was going to be embedded in the first war in Iraq. And I mean, we had a signed estimate and I knew that he was always going to go first to do anything in the photojournalist area. And we, I mean, I, I had an $80,000 fee that we just tore up the purchase order. He's going to be embedded. But I never look back on that as a bad thing because that's, you know, when I work with a photographer, that's my relationship. I knew that he was in that space. So, you know, so if you turn down the job, that, you know, I, I think sometimes it feels good. You know, there's always that little bitter thing that, you know, I really let that go. And you probably, to your point, may not work with them again. But, you know, there's a, there's a little bit about self-respect and self-esteem, you know, about, you know, listen, that is just not fair for me to shoot two national ads for a fee of $2,000, including the usage. Not fair, right? I know it happens, but how frequently do you get a call for an estimate? And it could be for a large job or a small job, but most likely for a larger job where 
something inside of you says this is just a dog and pony act. They've already they already know who they're using. They just have to throw a couple of more portfolios in front of the client. Does that does that happen often that you know of? Sometimes you get a sense of that, and and but but I have to say, with the art buyers that I work with, I'll ask them. Okay, know, listen, tell me I'm the second choice or the third choice. You just need a bid. And I have that kind of relationship where, so for me, it's great. I'll just do something real quick. Don't take any time, you know, with it because I know they want to work with so-and-so who they've already worked with and Zyga's done. When you're a rep, you like I said before, you can talk in a way that you can't talk when you're the photographer. You can say, hey, tell me about my photographer. What do you think? I mean, give me the truth. And that person's not going to say the same thing if it's the photographer. It's subjective versus it, subjective. It, 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 yeah, yeah. You're, you're, there's a distance there. I mean, so can can the same things that you say apply to the photographer themselves when they're dealing with the clients? You know, it depends upon how comfortable you've made the other person, right, and how comfortable they are with you. So you may you may get more information where they'll say, you know what, there was just a shot in the other guy's portfolio that was dead on to what we what we need, right? Or you know your numbers were a little bit high, and you know but the client was leaning towards there. So you you're you are on some level putting the art producer in an uncom you know an uncomfortable spot, but it's but it's so vitally important for you to get some of that feedback. You know this is why, you know but you know. Like, you know, what the, one of the first things I said is that, you know, just imagine that conference room and they've got those bids and they've got those links. You want that art producer or the, or the art director or the creative director or the writer to be an advocate for you. That, you know, that pushes your chances of getting that job so much higher. Let's have a few words about follow-up. And that could be after the assignment is finished and everybody's happy, hopefully happy, or you just submitted an estimate and they said, you know, uh, uh, regretfully no. But what do you do to follow up? How important is follow up? I mean, I know it is, but let's talk about no, it. No, the terrific question. Um, and I think that's probably the place that I find most frustrating, the real Achilles heel for photographers. They've done a job with somebody and they never follow up. And that could be in in who knows how many different ways you can do it. You find out that somebody has the same birthday as you do. Send them a card. Right. Right. You found out that somebody loves jelly beans, you know, on that two-day shoot on that plane. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, you, you found out that this guy's having a baby. You know, whatever it is, you know, be aware that there's something you could do in the smallest gesture. Right. You're talking to the guy. You know, I went through your website. There's a shot of this sunrise over, you know, Manhattan, that is just so stunning. If you don't make a stinking note about that, to send this guy a 16 by 20 or 11 by 14 print, and, and if you think, how many jobs have you done and how many of those have you had repeat business, mm -hmm. right? And if that equation is really slanted, you're doing something fundamentally wrong. But something should go out as a gesture. Thanks a lot. You know, just as a must. Well, here, yeah, bottom line, at the end of every single podcast, I thank Jason and John, and they invite me back the next week. <laughs> and I so know there, I, there's proof right there. And, and I've already <laughs> been guaranteed that $2,500 gift certificate from B&H. Yeah. That's why that's I'm That's right. Here. That's right. That's right. You got it. There's a guy downstairs and two blocks down. He's going to be in a Buick station wagon. You just wait there in the corner. Okay, let's go over a few things here. Uh, factors to consider when establishing your rates. There, there, there are some fixed things. You have the budget for the shoot or the event. 
Uh, copyright usage. Now, obviously, if shooting a wedding, you know, usage rights are no big deal. They're going to you know, put them into an album and never look at them again. Um, rental equipment uh, uh, and, and other issues that come into things. What are some of the things that you, have, you take into consideration on an average? It's hard to say average assignment, but let's call it an average assignment. Well, to your point, everything is really average as it relates to you're doing a job. Right, mm-hmm. you're gonna need casting, or you're gonna need equipment, or you, you know, all of those different things. So, what I do is, you look at you look at the layouts, or, or you've heard, you know, you've seen the description. This is what we need to do, and you just go right down your list. Okay, I'm gonna need one assistant. I'm gonna need two assistants to do the job. I'm gonna need to rent equipment. I'm gonna need to do a scout because what you're putting in there is you know is significant in that the person who gets it has to read it and recognize that you understand the project. So trying to be thrifty in those categories sometimes makes you look bad. Now that now that could be determined, you know, you have four assistants, maybe you could really get away with three. You know, that may be over the top. But, you know, looking at, you know, I'm looking at, at the estimate as an art buyer, I'm saying, that, you know, they don't have any money in here for a Winnebago. We're shooting out, you know, in the desert. Or, you know, we're shooting out on Long Island. It's going to be windy. You know, where are people going to the bathroom? You know, we're not going to take 20-minute rides back and forth to a diner, you know. So you need – so the, the point being you have to, you know, look at it and and, and the, the, the issue now becomes what do you charge for assistance and what do I charge for an assistant or a hair and makeup person or a prop stylist, right? So those numbers – and this is where everyone should take a lot of comfort – are generally going to be the same, right? If you have a stylist, you may charge eight fifty. I may charge eight, eight twenty-five. You know, it's not going to be eight fifty and fifty, right? Right, exactly. You know, yeah, so yeah. you have to be comfortable around that because people are looking at what you submit in a very professional way. You know, how come your number, your your bid ends up at twenty thousand and mine is at six? They're going to look that you know look at my numbers and they're going to do comparing. Mm-hmm. They're going to say, I only have one assistant, you have three. There's four shoots, four setups we need to do. It's probably better to have another two assistants to do that, right? Your your prop stylist is in at 800. Mine is in at 200. Why is that? Who who are we working at? You know who? Let let's see the links to your stylist and my stylist. Now the thing is, and you go right down the line, like with equipment rental, digital tech, on and on and on. They don't really have the time to say your numbers at 20, mine numbers at six. Right, they're going to get an impression, and that impression probably started when you were having these conversations that you're going to come in in a more professional way, and I'm just going to run and gun this. Now, no ad agency, no client wants to feel like they're being run and gunned. They want. Nor do they want to have to do it again. Exactly. Exactly. So. A lot of these things you're, you're talking, these are production things. I mean, it comes to the, the movie business or whatever, the producer's doing it or the production manager. And you're asking, in this case, the photographer to do it. And they exactly. have to know this stuff. And this is experience. And this is obviously a lot of research and checking and getting your numbers all before you get this information to somebody. Right. And, and I mean, and that's part of what I do. I mean, not to plug it, but, you know, people call me to estimate and negotiate for them exactly for these reasons and what and what it is it comes it becomes like a learning experience to the photographer this is this is what is normal this is you know because and and just the way i explained it it makes all the logical sense now it's different if you're doing that two-hour job you know just covering a press conference and it's just you your tuxedo and you know 
You're just standing there taking it. You don't need two assistants. Right, then you're over the top. And you could also have a two-hour shoot that will require three days of prepping Absolutely. to get the two hours of shooting. Right, so, so to, to, to the question is now, do you charge for that three days exactly. of prep? So it depends what that three days prep is looking like, right? Now, if they ask you, you know, what we'd like you to do is go see the space, right? You're shooting in this place. It has some challenges. There's a skylight. It looks like it's going to be a sunny day. You know, do you want to go there and see it first? And that may be something that you say, you know what? I'd love to go and see it first. You know, can you get me just so I, you know, I have to walk by on, on Tuesday. I'll just walk in and see it. Now, in that case, what you're doing that you're really, you're getting back to that whole connecting thing. You're saying to that client, you care. I know that that is a glass roof. And I want to know where that sun's coming in at 10 o'clock when that press conference is happening. That says to them, this guy gets it. Mm -hmm. And he's looking out for us. But many times the people that are re asking for a photographer, they have no clue. And, and you explain that, you know what, I need to see the place. I need to know what time to light in there. Well, why would you need to know that possibly? And why would you factor that into your budget? I think budget if you're dealing with like an that? agency, they're a little more attuned to that because they do this regularly. Whereas if yeah. you're dealing with an organization, right. The average person who's doing the PR, they don't know. For yeah, this, that's this, what I'm this, saying. You have to really educate. That's a real challenge. That's hard to explain, and, and, that's hard to explain and hard to budget. Now, because now you're a pain in the ass photographer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. You've just crossed over to what? Yeah. You want to do what and where? I mean, like, and and you know, so now you're part of you know the John Harris School that you now have a new student, right? And you have to explain to them this is why it's important. Now they either. Say, wow, that John is great, or John is a pain in my ass. They, they can either say, okay, you That's know what, a, I'm in good hands, or don't exactly. Say, don't you guys say anything? <laughs> but, 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 but that's the line, you know, again, like you talk about rates. You know, th this is the space that you have to say, I really need to do that. If I get in there and the sun is blaring through right over the, the stage, we're all, you know, we're all in trouble. By the way, that's also another one of your bargaining chips. When people start, you know, say you have a number that's out there and you know that it's pushing the, the, the limits of it. But when you go and say, you know what, I'm going to be down near there, you know, tomorrow, I'm just going to stop in on my dime, take a look at the place so that we could see if there are any headaches. When I go in there, I'm going to know what they are. You'd, it didn't cost you anything per se. But right. you gave them confidence, and you already said, I'm working with you. I'm doing this on my time, okay, to make sure that when we get there to do this project – no surprises. Right. And, and you may have a client for life. Exactly. I did a bid for the Crystal Meth Project. It's for prevention of these kids um, getting hooked on crystal meth. Five photographers bidding out of a San Francisco agency, two in LA, one in San Francisco who they already shot with, and two photographers here in New York. I said to the photographer right off the top, the whole job is why are they going to get in a plane from San Francisco and shoot with you in New York. What's the reason? That is, we have to come up with that reason. It's so much easier to use, the, you know, and we had to get Hollywood makeup. So all that stuff was in LA, mm -hmm. right? And they gave us the number. The number was 50,000 to do this project. It was four ads, uh, five-year usage, and it was, you know, for a terrific cause, crystal meth prevention, and the layouts were great. Everyone wanted to do it. So, you know the number is 50, which is great because that levels the playing field. Yes. If I come in at 40 or 30, I look like an idiot, right? If you come in at 70, you don't want the job. So everyone was going to be at 50, 48, 42, uh, you know, um, 52. The numbers were all going to generally be the same. We're getting ready to send the estimate, and the photographer was Ron Haviv. 
a great photojournalist, and he wrote a creative brief, which is you know, something else we may want to discuss. And just before we're sending it, I said to Ron, you know what? Let's put in for a drug consultant to be on the set. And well, what do you mean? Well, you know, that's usually a recovering addict. Somebody there that can direct the kids because, you know, these aren't crystal meth users. These are just kids. So I send the estimate and two minutes later, they call me, what's with the crystal meth user? And I said, you know what? You could read off a sheet of paper what it's like to be a crystal meth user. But to have somebody nose to nose with you describing you've stolen from your parents, you've taken the earrings out of your sister's ear when she slept to get money and, you know, all this desperation stuff that these poor people go through. Ten minutes later, they called the job was ours. Brilliant. Yeah. And what a simple idea, right? And then two days later after the shoot, they call me, can we get the name of that crystal meth user and his (laughs) phone number? So why? We're shooting TV commercials and we want him on the set. Nobody else had thought it but us. And the guy who did the TV spots, $2 million um, budget for that project was the guy who directed Black Swan. Mm. So this big production, all these people, nobody thought about it but us. And that's how we got the job. So let me ask you. So, again, you're in a unique position where this is what you do for a living. You basically are a negotiator, okay? To a photographer starting out or somebody who does not have a rep and they have a project come up that maybe they're not as familiar with or they're just starting and not familiar with anything in general mm. – where can they turn to, where can he or she turn to online or elsewhere to find out where are some basic rates for different kinds of assignments where I live? In other words, obviously, if you're living here in midtown Manhattan, the rates are going to be different if you're in Des Moines, okay, or, you know, anywhere else. Um, so where, where does one go? Where, where are good starting points where you can get safe numbers that you're not going to get too injured yeah, with? I, I would think APA and ASMP – I think those places are great, you know, especially those re- the regional offices. There's also the MPAA, NPPA calculator. You can go to their website and they have they'll every little thing from, you know, if you what the licensing agreement will be, uh, how much time you need, you know, what your rental is, assistance and all that. And they'll give you kind of an estimate of what a good. Okay. A what good site is that be. again? That's NPPA. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. That's the answer to the question. And they can uh, do it in a real local way as well, yeah. right? Yeah. They do it in the yeah. And that's terrific. important because, yeah. you know, you go, you could read on a website and say, oh, it's X amount of dollars. Yeah. Well, that might be in a major city and if you're not in the yeah. major city or vice versa. So you got to really know but where yeah, you are. Between that and speaking to colleagues, I think it is your best bet. Yeah. If you're working in that space, you've probably worked for somebody. And I, I find the business, um, people want to help each other. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're a young person starting out, you probably assisted the best photographers in all of Des Moines, right? So, hey, John, I just got this, you know, just got this call from the magazine, you know, the, uh, the Montclair Gazette, you know, and they want me to do, you know, the new traffic light that just went up on Main Street. What should I charge? Wait, I, they, they told me I didn't get that assignment. No, no, they did. Your guy got it? My guy got that. I got a commission. I didn't even get a return I, phone call from I him. got a commission off of $75. <laughs> it was a slice of pizza. How much should, How much in Des Moines are you going to get for that job? Let's talk numbers. I I would say, I mean, I mean, not knowing is a fact, but I would say that's probably 150 bucks. Okay. 200 bucks. All right. Let's say you're, uh, my example, I went, I 
work for universities, different universities, and I do their author talks or whatnot. And I'm going for a night of two hours of a shoot, uh, not much prep, two, three hours of editing. I get them the photos. They use it for social media. They use it for, they may use, mostly social media, really, what it is now right, again. Yeah. And then they want to archive the stuff for their history. And, right. uh, and I charge $300 for that. And uh, Plus your expenses, you know, going up there, wherever you're going? No, no, three hundred oh. flat. Oh, so, but you're yeah, sleeping yeah, home yeah. tonight. I mean, like you know, you, yeah, yeah, it's all yeah, here. It's all, 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 it's all within walking okay. and biking distance. You okay. Know? Um, but then again, someone's going to say to me, for example, like the author did last night. Hey, can you send me a selection of photos too? And who knows what they're going to do with the photos? You know. Yes, so, so what that, should I say to that person? That, that I wouldn't do. No. What What I would do? I would send it to them. I would watermark right. them. Mm -hmm. And then they want to use them. All right, um, Sally. You know, what are you using them for? Well, I have a book cover. Well, that's not part of the rights, you know. So that that has to be clear. I'm going to send you all of them. I'd watermark them, you know, so so they they cannot be used. And you know, just tell me, you know, if you if you'd like to use them, here's my card. I'd love to talk to you, you know, or talk to your publisher. What I would do is I would do sort of an upsell, where you know you have Pete Hamill, has come in, he's giving a talk. Can I set up a seamless talk about your archive, right? Have a seamless. Let me set up a seamless, and let's start to really archive. And I can just do, you know, I have the lights set up, right? And now you have him walk in, take, you know, ten shots. So now that becomes part of the archive. So now, because I always tell photographers, it's all about me. You know, you should wake up every morning. It's all about me. Now you have a nice portrait of Pete Hamill. So all of a sudden, you know, because it's all about you, you're building up a little bit of an archive for yourself that you have a nice portrait of these writers of our time, right? They get it, you get it. So now there's some value to you. You're already there, right? So, you know, are there, are there different ways to just, you know, grow it out for them and for you? And then all of a sudden, they need a, a beautiful portrait of the president of the school and the board of directors. So now they're looking at you more than this guy who's running gun. He shoots the two hours and out, you know? So that's sort of the upsell. Would, it, would it be fair to say that a lot of the problems photographers having today, having to do with billing and fees and all this stuff, have to do with the fact that most creative types are terrible when it comes to business? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hate I cannot I, tell you how many creative people I know are horrible, and I'll, I'll raise my hand for that too. I really wish I took business courses up front because I look back at some of the things that I did, and I'm saying, what were you thinking? I hate I hate saying, you know, women do this, men do this, photographers, but it's absolutely the truth. You know, I, I always use an example. You know, if you send me a photograph and I want to make a print of it, right, and I crop it a quarter of an inch, you'll be up in my nose. Oh, yeah. How could you crop my image? But if I you give that image and they sell it to Merrill Lynch to do, a, you know, a worldwide ad for 250 bucks, you're good. <laughs> right, I mean, it, it, it's crazy. Yes, it's true. It, it's absolutely crazy. I I, 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 I don't yeah. get that. Frank, we can go on all day long on this topic. Uh, we don't have time for all of that. Um, where can people find you? Uh, what's coming up on your schedule? Anything interesting coming up? Yeah, it's uh, the website is thephotocloser.com. And um, in fact, we're doing a workshop uh, the second week in May, May 12th through the 15th where we're discussing all of these issues in real detail. And I invite people to go to the site and sign up. If, if Where's this going to be? In the city, here in New York. Okay, all um, right. And I'm really you know thrilled about it. I have some terrific sponsors 
um, who um, who are helping us out. Not to mention B and H uh, doing a shout out for us here, which I appreciate very very much. Um, so yeah, we're uh, you know workbook and Dugal and on on on. Frank Mayo, thank you so much for joining us. A great conversation. After a break, we'll be back with the first segment of our new series, Dispatch, with Adrian O'Hannison. Stay tuned. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at bhphotovideo, hashtag bhphotopodcast. Adrian O'Hannison began photographing in Africa in 2010 and has covered South Sudan from its independence movement to its current conflict, often focusing her attention on the plight of the average person caught within the crisis. She has also covered Darfur and the ongoing fight against Al-Shabaab in Somalia and the refugee crisis in the region, and in 2015 was selected as one of Getty Images' emerging photographers. In 2016, she won a World Press Photo Award and the Andre Niedringhaus Courage in Photojournalism Award for her work in Darfur. This year, she was selected as one of PDN's 30 new and emerging photographers. Her work has been published by The Wall Street Journal, National Geographic, The New Yorker, The New York Times, Vice, and Time magazine. In our first segment, Adrian will introduce us to our working life as a freelancer based in Nairobi, talk about a recent assignment for Vice, and prepare us for her upcoming assignment in Somalia. I guess this is year seven. Um, I started in Sudan in 2010, worked my way down to South Sudan uh, for independence in 2011, and from there stayed and covered South Sudan for a couple of years before relocating to Kenya in 2014. Most of my work is outside of Kenya, although I call Kenya my home and my base. Um, I think that's been quite useful to me in terms of separating my work and my life. So when I'm in Kenya, I kind of feel like I have friends here and can enjoy myself and I'm not necessarily always searching for the next story right in my backyard. And I think that in a way has been has been good for me. A majority of my work has been in South Sudan and, and that's an ongoing story. Um, and while I know the place well, it's also sometimes very difficult to see with fresh eyes and especially with photography to come up with images that I haven't taken before. And so that's that's a challenge with, with any place that you cover on a regular basis is how, how can I show this differently? What can I tell? that I haven't told before. The stories aren't necessarily assigned. I, I do research. I work with other journalists in the region and pitch the stories from there or just shoot the stories and then try to sell them later. One part of working in this region as a freelancer that's difficult is getting work assigned. And that for me is because a lot of the places that I do work in are quite dangerous or can be quite dangerous. South Sudan, for example, definitely Somalia, where people are hesitant to put freelancers on assignment because they don't want to take on the risk. And that's been a frustration of mine and also of my colleagues, um, where outlets will say, well, when you come back, we'd really like to see the material that you have, but we can't necessarily assign you because it is a a dangerous setting. So the last few weeks I've been working on one story for Vice Online 
um, which was a story about a Somali boy who's separated from his mother. His mother is currently living in the U.S. And I've been also doing research and trying to put together a trip to go into Somalia. Both of these stories obviously relate directly to what's happening in the U.S. at this point in time. It's been strange to to be away during the inauguration and and to see all the developments that are happening. Of course, how they're affecting life here and people internationally, but just from a perspective of an American being away. You know, and I've I've covered so many places where people's countries are, are just in disarray. People feel like their countries are falling apart. And so many people I see are really pulled back home and feel a big commitment to playing a role and being present and helping in any way that they can within their own countries. And I've documented that and I've always been amazed by that. And all of a sudden I feel myself wanting to go back to the States, maybe be pulled back. Do I have a role to play there? Um, and that's something I haven't felt before. And I've, I've talked to many American friends and, and journalists who are abroad and they're, they're starting to feel the same way. Um, but hopefully one way to, to kind of handle these personal feelings is also to document how they'll be affecting the people in the region where I live. Going back to Mohammed, he was four years old. Um, so to have a couple of foreign women hanging out around him all day was definitely something new. Um, the community is mainly Somali. It's within a section of Nairobi, um, but where they stay is in Eastleigh, uh, which has been called Little Mogadishu. It's mainly um, Somalis who live there. So I got to spend a full day with Mohammed, which was, I had a blast actually. Um, I hope he did too. Although he did come at me a couple of times with a angry lion face and claws, which was definitely a sign that we needed to take a little break from the camera. Um, but I got to spend a full day with this little boy who had been taken in by a woman that his mother doesn't even know, has never even met. And again, his mother is, is in the States living in Ohio. He hasn't seen her for a couple of years. He's just in the process of setting up his refugee status in Kenya because he cannot travel to the States until he has, he's officially registered here. So during our day, we got to go, the writer and I got to go with Mohammed and his caregiver to try to register in Kenya, get the paperwork in order. And it was just, for me, I was there for one day. I was there for less than five hours. And the amount of frustration that I felt for these people, just selfishly, I couldn't even handle sitting around there. I was quickly told I wasn't allowed to photograph. And um, so we really just got to have the experience of being stuck uh, in the middle of concrete walls and literally cages. I don't know why there were cages, but that's where people were waiting. They had set up waiting areas inside of these white um, cages and we sat there and we waited and 
we were shuffled from one line to the next. And I think maybe the process moved a bit faster because we were present. Um, we are also worried that maybe things would move more slowly um, because there were two foreigners and our translator who had accompanied Muhammad and his caregiver. But just to see people who were continuously asking questions, am I in the right line? What do I need to do next? And the confusion and the uncertainty, some small children with their mothers, um, young men who had made it all the way down to Nairobi from Somalia, from South Sudan. Some had come in from Congo. A uh, busload of people had arrived that morning from Ethiopia. Some people familiar with the city, some people not, um, all crammed into this space trying to figure out what, what they needed to get refugee status just in Kenya. I hadn't really seen a process like that before. And um, it was just extremely confusing and and frustrating. And little Mohammed was there uh, clutching his folder of paperwork, being shuffled around. It was sometimes hard to tell how much he was aware of. Um, but you could tell that whenever that folder came out with his paperwork, uh, he was aware of that there was a process and, and that there were steps he needed to take. And that at the end of that process was the hope that he could be reunited with his mother. And it was just amazing to see a four-year-old boy who essentially, of course, he's with his caregiver, but he's here and he's stuck here. And does he understand that there's people in the United States who are making laws and... I don't know. It was it was hopefully useful to share his story uh, so that people can can see and understand um, first of all the struggles that these people are going through, and um, second of all, most of them are just normal everyday people like Mohammed who are trying to be reunited with their families and go to school and be a part of a larger community because they can't do that in their in their homelands. So I think the next step for me, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, although these things are very slow to develop sometimes, I think the next step will be trying to get on the ground in Somalia, uh, which is always challenging. I've, I've worked there a few times before. It's fascinating. It's also very dangerous. But I think it it's worth it to a certain extent. A lot of the stories coming out of Somalia, at least, or or any countries tied to U.S. policy at this point, um, one of the ways in which we can kind of get attention to these these places is through relating them uh, directly, relating the stories directly to the U.S. So something I'll be working on is going into Somalia. And focusing on two parts, the first part will be the African Union forces and their fight, continuing fight against Al-Shabaab, uh, the Al-Qaeda, and more recently, ISIS-linked uh, group. And that, that conflict, specifically against the African Union, has been going on for about 10 years now. 
I think the 10th year anniversary will be in March. So I'll hopefully be trying to go in with those forces. I've, I've done that once before. And it's a, it's a really big challenge to go in with the military. The main concern obviously being security, because unlike a lot of other places that I've worked here, you're really a target. You're a target because you're with a military group, but you're also a target because you're a foreigner. And so kidnapping uh, is a very high risk as well. But the reason why I do want to show the ongoing military aspect is just kind of to describe and show to people that there is still a war going on. And that means lots of different things for people. It, it might mean there is violence where they once lived. It may mean that resources have been cut off. It may mean that it's not safe enough for them to farm or take care of livestock. So there's lots of different reasons besides really the conflict itself that people might flee. Normally, I would say they're kind of these trickle-down effects from, from the fighting itself. So I'm going to try to show that Mogadishu is more challenging, but hopefully the goal would be to get outside of Mogadishu to a forward operating base with the African Union forces to see what's really happening on the ground militarily, but also hopefully speak to some people if it's possible. It's, it's a really big challenge um, security-wise, and I realize the, the people that we're with on the embed will be taking quite a big risk by... Um, having us there, but hopefully to be able to talk to some civilians and see how they're feeling about the situation. Um, there are many Somalis who are trying to come back from Kenya. Uh, Kenya's been threatening to close down the largest refugee camp, largest refugee camp in the world, actually. I think it's around 350,000 people now, mainly Somalis. But many of those people are trying to come back to Somalia and what that means and, and how, they're, how they're going about that. And also the, the recognition that people want to return home. The second story that I'll try to be documenting is on the severe drought that's plaguing the region. And this also ties in to the refugee crisis, I think, but is also a story in itself for obvious reasons. Uh, the entire region from Somalia, Kenya, um, Uganda is going through a period of severe drought. There have been famine warnings issued throughout Somalia. Um, so really to look at that as well in terms of are people able to survive in this place and will this drought and possible famine be creating more refugees. The drought in 2011 in Somalia, I believe it was around 200,000 people fled the country. So the combination of U.S. policy towards Somali refugees, Kenya threatening to close down its largest refugee camp, and then we have Europe that's trying to curb the flow of refugees, all factors. But let's take a look on the ground and see what's actually happening are people going to be able to survive in these places? There is still a war going on, um, and now they have uh, this possible famine. 
So those are the two aspects I'd like to focus on. Accomplishing that logistically is always the biggest challenge. I find that once I get on the ground, things move a bit more easily. And once you can speak to people face to face and explain to them why you're there, what you want to be doing, things are much more easy. Somalia is difficult because, well, first of all, if you're if you're there with the military, you're quite restricted. A lot of the flights are United Nations run flights. It's hard to get on those flights as a journalist. So now I'm in the process of searching some slightly questionable airlines. I don't want to talk badly about them because I'll probably end up getting one of on one of these pretty old planes soon. So um, they've always treated me very well in the past, but they scare me a little bit. But I'm in the process of trying to find the cheapest plane ticket into Somalia. So I'd fly into Mogadishu, um, go out with the African Union forces from there. And then ideally afterwards, uh, fly up to Puntland, which is in the north of the country. And I've been told, I've been talking to a few people who work for NGOs on the ground in Puntland, that this is at the moment the most affected area. Um, what tends to happen is the land dries up and, and people begin to lose their, their livestock, their goats or their camels. And, and that's for a lot of these people, especially nomadic people, um, that's their livelihood. So their meat or their milk is coming from their animals. And if, if their animals are passing away, they really have nothing left. So what I've been told is people are starting to come out of the desert, move out of their homelands and kind of congregate along the main roads um, in hopes that they'll be able to flag down passing vehicles or that international organizations will be able to find them and to access them. So these are just things I've, I've been told. I've been sent some images to kind of understand what to expect on the ground. And security-wise, it's also very frustrating because I like to be out early in the morning and I like to be out just before dark or even just after dark and with a tight security situation like um, in Somalia those are the times you really don't want to be out or aren't allowed out so I'm expecting I don't know I even and try actually I don't want to put anyone at risk or myself or my colleagues but it's always <laughs> a struggle for me. I always, I just have to ask, can we, can we wake up a bit earlier? Can we stay out a bit later? Especially with the harsh sun in Somalia and the, the reflection off the desert. It's really hard to photograph, um, when the sun, when the sun is out, but maybe we'll be, we'll be praying for some clouds and some rain, uh, with this severe drought that's going on. Um, so yeah, over the next couple of weeks, I'll be working, working out the logistics and also just trying to access things that haven't been documented before. Um, I'm interested more and more in women's roles in, in the military, and but also how women in the military can more easily access women in Somalia because the two genders are quite separate, are kept quite separate. So I'm I'm hopeful that either through military personnel or maybe even um, 
Somali police force. Somalia has an all-women's police force now, uh, spending some time with those women. A women in journalism issue came up recently when I've been planning this trip because there's a group of about four of us, all women, who were interested in, in going on this in-bed with the, with the African Union forces. And I got really worried because when I had gone before, I was the only woman. And I was with a group of men and it was great because I just went along and there was no question. Nobody questioned whether or not I could keep up. Actually, nobody, nobody asked. <laughs> um, but this time I'm kind of curious to see how I'll be treated as a group of all women inside of a military embed because I, I kind of fear that they'll, I don't know, they won't let us have as much access or they won't think that maybe we can go on a full patrol, full foot patrol with the forces, or if we go out on a night patrol, you know, I still want to stay up all night. I want to be present if there's a raid. I want to, basically, I want to experience as much as I can when I'm there. And I, I just hope that, that they don't, I don't know, restrict our access um, with the assumption then maybe we, we can't handle some of the scenes or some of the physical demands that embedding with a military entails. Uh, so that's something I'm kind of curious about, but I'm also a bit nervous because for me really going to these places, and I, I do think it's quite a big risk going to Somalia. If I'm going to be there, I really want to get solid material, unique material, yeah, I just I just hope that people aren't making assumptions and, and putting up boundaries uh, before we even get on the ground. Thank you, Adrian. And watch for the next segment of Dispatch in which Adrian will report on her embed with African Union troops and her coverage of the drought in Somalia. Once again, thanks so much to the great Frank Mayo for joining us and bringing us Rugelach, very important chocolate, no less. Check out Frank's services at thephotocloser.com. Also, a huge thanks to Adrian O'Hanneson. And as always, thank yous to John and Jason and to all of our listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in today.